Well, it feels great to be invited to a party, doesn't it? I mean, for many of us in the world, the social restrictions that we've been living under for the, for the last couple of years have been just really tough. And it just, it just feels good to be able to get together again with some friends and have a good time and have a dinner party, have a movie party, have a whatever kind of a thing. And to just, uh, just you know, no longer for the extroverts do you feel like your soul is just sort of being eaten away. It just feels good to be invited to a party. And even if you're an introvert, uh, even if you're an introvert and it's, it's difficult for you to be in social settings or it's kind of awkward as you try and think up the reasons to say why you can't apart, be part of that party because it's too intimidating for you, even if that's your spot, I mean, it feels good to be invited, right? I mean, if you're in the office and you're the only person that doesn't get invited, that's kind of rough. So it feels good to be invited to a party. It's good. Well, it dawned on me. A few weeks ago, I can't remember exactly when, but as I was uh, you know, meditating through this passage that we're looking at today, it really kind of describes uh, for us, or lays out for us, two different kinds of parties. Two different kinds of parties. And as I'm reading this, I thought, man, you know, that's like this one kind of a party where this happens, and here's another kind of a party where this happens. And I, I just sort of was thinking about that. So you can imagine my joy when I found out that even some of the smart people think the same and see the same thing. Because in Frank Tillman's commentary, he, he said, you know, when you think about the first portion of the passage that we're going to be looking at, if you're trying to figure the context in which he's, he's addressing his word, it may well have been the sort of lavish banqueting that sometimes gave rise to these activities with the Gentile and the pagan festivities and so on, festivals that they had. That's kind of described in this first part of the party. And then when we get to the second part of the passage, Chris uh, pointed out to me uh, just uh, in the part of the week, he said, look at this, you know, Eugene Peterson in his message translation, he sort of picks up on this party theme and this is, this is what he says. He says, listen, don't drink too much wine because that cheapens your life. Drink the Spirit of God, huge drafts of him, copious amounts of him and sing hymns instead of drinking songs. This passage that we're going to look at, it's about us becoming a party animal. And God's delight in us being a party animal as long as it's the right kind of a party. And so he's going to, he's going to lay before us two different ways to party. Two different parties that we can be invited to and we get to choose where it's at. Because you see, what this passage is all about is quite simply this. That you are invited to party. You are invited to party. But a choice is set before you as the kind of party life and party animal that you want to be. All right, so that's our choice. We've been invited to this party, two parties in fact. What kind of a party animal do you want to be part of? All right, so let's pick it up and you'll see what I mean as we go here in Ephesians chapter 5, beginning with verse, what are we going to give it? Yeah, verse 3. But among you... There must not even be a hint of sexual immorality or of any kind of impurity or of greed because these are improper for God's holy, God's special people. Nor should there be a obscenity, foolish talk or coarse joking which are out of place but rather thanksgiving. For of this you can be sure, no immoral, impure, or greedy person, such a person is an idolater, a greedy person, an idolater, has any inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and of God. Let no one deceive you 
with empty words. For because of such things, God's wrath comes on those who are disobedient. Therefore, do not be partners with them. Don't party with them. For you were once darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Live as children in the light, for the fruit of light consists of all goodness, righteousness, and truth. And find out what pleases the Lord. Have nothing to do with the fruitless deeds of darkness, but rather expose them. It's shameful even to mention what the disobedient do in secret. But everything exposed by the light becomes visible, and everything that is illuminated becomes light. This is why it says, wake up, sleeper, rise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. This is a, a song, an early Christian baptismal song, they figure. Be careful, then, how you live, not as unwise, but as wise, making the most of every opportunity, because the days are evil. Therefore, don't be foolish, but understand what the Lord's will is. Don't get drunk with wine, which leads to debauchery. Instead, be filled with the Spirit, speaking to one another with psalms and hymns, and songs from the Spirit. Sing and make music from your heart to the Lord, always giving thanks to God your Father for everything in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Two parties, two choices. Which party do we want to go to? And it describes first what it's kind of like from, from God's perspective to party in the dark. And the way in which he describes parting in the dark is to use the classic Jewish criticisms of, of the Gentile life and morality. And he, he just sort of rises up with three concerns. And the first one is, is inappropriate sexuality. And the second one is, is inappropriate use of songs and of speech. And the third thing is, is selfishness or greed. And he says, you know, if you go to these Gentile festivals and parties, this is kind of what you see. It's kind of what you see. I remember uh, years ago, uh, a person said to me, in the, in the uh, struggle of marriage and, and so on, and I remember, I remember these words as she was talking about the struggle of marriage. She said, you know what, what, here's what I know. Where there's booze, there's women. And that's what's the problem in our marriage. And this is the sort of the Gentile view, like all this kind of stuff. And this party leads to this kind of, this kind of darkness. And he uses this Jewish language to do it. So let's, let's think about what he says. He says, the first problem is inappropriate sexuality. I mean, to party where sexuality is the center of it, that's inappropriate. It's just a destructive for life. And he uses two or three different words to describe what he's talking about. The first one is immorality or pornea. That's the word that, that has to do with it, pornea. And it's used to describe fornication or adultery and prostitution. Really, the truth is this, this word pornea just sort of means any sexual activity that God would deem to be wrong. It's just sort of this general sense. We get a word, of course, pornography from it, don't we? So pornea. And that's the problem. He said, another problem is just immorality. Immorality. And it's a very broad word. It means to do anything that's, that's immoral, anything that's against God's character. But in the Bible, it's used very often. And certainly in this context, particularly describing any kind of deviant sexual behavior. And the truth is, if you want to get right down to it, what he's saying is that, listen, that the problem with one kind of partying is that it is sexuality outside of marriage. Well, why is that a problem? I love, I love what Tom Wright says about this. We've got it right here. Look at this. It's not the problem that sex is bad. The problem is that sex is good. Precisely because sex is good and an important part of God's creation of the animal kingdom 
and of humans within it, precisely because it is a means of tenderness and intimacy between husband and wife, as well as the means of God-given procreation, precisely because it is the occasion for great blessing. This is what you're supposed to get out of sex. A great blessing, emotional fulfillment, because of all of these people on the road to a genuinely human existence. There's two ways you can practice sex. Like the rest of the animal kingdom, or as a true human being where intimacy and gentleness and kindness and fulfillment and celebration is found. The road to generally human existence promised in Christ must avoid all cheap imitations. Precisely because sex is good, precisely because sex is a gift from God our Father to have this intense intimacy and delight and celebration. Because of that, God says, don't cheapen it by partying as these Gentiles do. But he's not just concerned about the physical act of of intercourse and sexuality. He's also a bit concerned about the celebration of immorality in speech and in songs. That's what verse 4 is talking about. He's saying it's not just the the acts of these things, but but verse 4, obscenity and foolish talk and coarse joking. That's not the kind of partying we should be doing. That's not the kind of thing that we should be bringing laughs out of. You know, historians tell us, you can go back, you can read some of them. Historians talk about the bawdy songs, songs about sex that that were sung at these Gentile uh, wild uh, orgies and parties and festivals and those things. They, they, they'd put it to, to song and to rhyme and they'd sing it, you know, these drinking songs that they'd get in. You can look historically at them. Uh, but this idea, of course, joking, it's really interesting. The, the, the word that's used there for course joking, the Greek word, actually it's, it's mostly a positive word. It's a word that kind of means a quick wit. That's, that's literally what it means. And, and you read some of the, the Greek writings and it's, it's something that's praised. Somebody that's got a quick wish. Actually, somebody that you love to have at a party. Somebody who's got a good turn of the phrase. Somebody who can see the humor in situations. Somebody that's kind of fast in the break. I mean, we all know people like this, right? You know, they see a situation and they can just somehow put it into words that are just, wow, that's funny. And everybody, everybody laughs. But the problem is that, that quick wit It can so easily go wrong. And so he's got this warning about when we're together and we're celebrating and we're all having a good time. He says, what he's saying is that there's a couple of different ways that this quick wit, this this trip of the tongue, this this language, this aroma of the speech, as Irene titled the Tuesday meeting, that there's a couple of ways it can go wrong. And the first way it can go wrong in this context is it can be sexually vulgar speech. And Aesop, you know Aesop's, fables and stuff like that. He was well known for very coarse and crude language, actually. And we read our kids' apes of stories, but that's not, that's not the whole deal going on with him. And all of a sudden, the sexuality can become cheapened. You see, the whole point of sexuality is that it is sacred and not to be cheapened. And so, and so it, can, it can go wrong that way all of a sudden. And we see that, right, with humor. If you can't you know, be too creative, then just make a joke about sex, and then everybody laughs. But there's another way, another way that coarse language is used. And it's this. 
It can take a wrong term and a quick wit can become cutting and malicious toward other people. It, it can be a situation where, where people want to laugh and so they, they make somebody else the butt of the joke. Throw a little meanness in there, throw a little sarcasm in there. Actually, Cicero was, was criticized, the great big you know, philosopher back then. He was criticized. So he, was a, you know, he was a brilliant philosopher and politician and great with speech. But he was criticized a generation so later by Plutarch who said, you know, the problem with, with Cicero is that he, with his words, would anger many and became known as a malicious man. This is also this coarse language. He says, listen, if you're in a party and you're together, you just be careful. Number one, you keep, you keep sexuality sacred and good and a gifted dog. And, and you do not speak maliciously and make jokes at the expense of other people. That's not the kind of language that it, that, that's to come out. And so he gives that. He gives that one. Then there's a final warning about speech in the songs. Verse 6. Don't be deceived by people who will tell you that sexual morality or being vicious to other people has no consequence, that it's not a big deal. Don't be fooled by the words of a Gentile society that said that that stuff is not a big deal. It's okay. It doesn't hurt anybody. He says, don't, don't, don't listen to that language. Watch out for that kind of speech. And then finally he says, you know, the last thing that, that happens in these parties is that they become selfish in this party because it becomes about, am I having a good time? Am I getting what I want? You see, selfishness is what lies at the heart of greed. This uh, acquiring and accumulating of more and more and more for the pleasure of oneself. I learned a lot in Andy Stanley's book. I've mentioned to you before, Enemies of the Heart, about greed. And the two main things in his chapter on greed that stood out to me were, were twofold. Number one, he said, you know what? I've never met a greedy person. There's all kinds of people who will confess their sin. You know, I can be angry or I can be what, impatient, or I can be, you know, all kinds of different things, but very few people say, you know what, my problem is I'm just greedy. And so in our society, we've got all kinds of nice words, he says, that, that, that describe ourselves. If we're greedy, you know, we'll talk about, well, you know what, I, I'm kind of a careful person, or I'm a, I'm a frugal person, or I watch my pennies. We can assign nice language to it and we can fool ourselves. And everybody else can think, well, hey, Jones is just greedy. But I can fool myself in the way in which I describe myself. So the second thing I learned that Stanley said, so here's the test. Are you ready? Here's the test. When you get an unexpected windfall, you get a bigger income tax return than you think. Is your first thought, oh, good. I just assume that this is all for me. Or does it enter in your thinking that maybe God has provided that for you so that you can bless somebody else? Does it even enter your mind? Not much. It's a test because it's difficult to admit that we're greedy. So there's the test. You get something unexpected. Do you always just assume it's for you? Or do you perhaps think that you are blessed because you're supposed to bless somebody else and be a conduit? And so he warns out about greed. Now, here's what's interesting. Way, way back to the time of Origen, who was like, you know, the end of the first century, hundred and stuff. He said, you know what this greed is? It's still talking about sexuality. 
And he's still saying, you know what, that greed in your sex is wrong. So what's greed in our sex life? I mean, it's not just, you know, getting everything I can get. It's who's at the center of our sexuality. Even within, within marriage, Sheena and I, the, the question is, all right, who, who, who's the center of this? Who am I most interested in, in as we have sex? What, is, it, is it me? Am I being greedy? Am I being selfish? Or am I thinking about I can impart joy and intimacy and love to my partner? So the greed there, it might be money, it might be material stuff, it might be food that we normally think of, but from way back to the first century, you know, Origen and Jerome and some of these guys, they said, no, no, he's still talking about greed in your sex life, that even in marriage, it can become idolatry because you can put yourself at the center of that. And that's the wrong kind of party. Greed is idolatry because we come to love and trust and obey something else other than God. It's kind of an interesting thought, isn't it? I, I mean, I've thought about you know, greed for money. I've thought about money being uh, idolatry quite a bit, you know, because, you know, we want it and we worship it. So I, I hadn't really thought about it, about does, do I obey money? Does my accumulation of wealth govern my life? Do I obey it? Just, just in the last couple of weeks, I, I just was sort of touched on a, a marriage that fell apart. Because Guy had a great job, but he was gone all the time. And his spouse was like, you know, she's like, honey, we can't do this. We're breaking down. I can't give up the money. can't give up the money. Finally, the, finally the marriage, that's it. That's the end of that family. Because he was obeying money. You've got to do this to keep the income that you have. It. That's obedience to money. That's idolatry, he says. So that's one kind of party. Isn't it fun? Problem is... Of course, I remember when I was in Bible college, we were driving up and we were talking about sex when we were coming out actually to Grand Prairie for a college weekend. And I remember Gary Hatt, the professor, saying, listen, nobody says that sin isn't fun. Because it is fun. At first. And that's why you've got to watch out for that deceitful language. Because you can paint a picture of how much fun that kind of partying is. The problem is it ends in tears. And so God offers us another kind of a party, to party in the light. And he starts out with what Peterson describes as drinking deep drafts of the Spirit. The New International Version of this will say, but listen, instead of partying like that, instead, if you want to have a party of life, if you want to have a party of light, then what you need to do is be filled with the Holy Spirit to drink in the Holy Spirit instead of these other things. Now, this command here to, to, to be filled with the Spirit, in verse 18, I think it is, it is the governing verse for everything else that follows all the way up into chapter 6, verse 10. Okay, so everything we're going to talk about for the rest of today and all of the next time that I preach, I think, all the way through into the middle of the sixth chapter, understand that it comes through that, listen, the key to being the party animal that God wants you to be is to be full of the Holy Spirit. Okay, that's what it's all about. Being full of the Spirit is the medicine to the ailments of life that Paul has just been describing. And being full of the Spirit is the antidote to sin and it's the nourishment for kingdom life. It's the source of the party life 
that God wants us to have. The whole idea of being filled with the Spirit, it's, it's talking about being controlled by the Holy Spirit of God. I love what Gordon Fay, as you know, he's my go-to guy when it comes to things of the Holy Spirit, especially his book, God's Empowering Presence, brilliant book, big fat sucker. He deals with every passage in Paul to do with the Holy Spirit. And he says this, he says, listen, this whole thing about being filled with the Spirit and drinking deep drafts of the Spirit, what's that all about? He quote, listen, this is a quote. It's to be evidenced, not by spirit inebriation. Now, if you've been around Pentecostal guys, God bless them. You know, I learned a lot from Pentecostal guys who have been there. And you, sometimes you'll hear about people, you know, being drunk of the Spirit. Have you ever heard about that? Yeah. Yeah. A couple of people drunk of the Spirit, okay? Good on you, go for it, whatever. But, but that's not the evidence of what Paul's talking about here, says Fee. But by the behavior and worship that give full evidence of God's empowering presence. And then the, the, what he's saying is that there's two tests. You want to know what it means to be full of the Holy Spirit? To be filled with the Holy Spirit instead of wine? There's two tests. Number one is worship and number two is submitting to those whom you might normally have power over. We're going to talk about that in a couple of weeks. But today, we're going to talk about this whole thing about, about worship. And so he says, listen, what you need to do is you need to be filled with the Holy Spirit. This stuff, you guys, you guys, you guys, I know I go on about this forever, but it's so critical because the Christian life is life in the Spirit. Without the Holy Spirit, there is no Christian life. Without the Holy Spirit, there is no party animal that God wants. And it, it, it's temple imagery. You know that whole thing? Think back, you know, to Isaiah, you know, in the Lord, in the Spirit, and I saw the Lord, and the whole temple was filled with glory. You know that great passage in there, and the train of the road filled? You know, the idea, this is temple language, and it's this. You can read all of those passages in the Old Testament about when God shows up, and he fills his temple, and it's so bright and so light. And what he's saying is that, now listen, you need to understand that you as an individual, but more importantly in this passage in Ephesians, you as the church are the temple, and God wants his glory to shine in your life and through for the church. That's what it is to be the filled of the Holy Spirit, that the glory of God is kind of like Moses coming off the mountain. Remember, he had to put a veil over his face. Every Christian, every church, it should have the glory of God because we're filled with the Holy Spirit. It's temple language. Next thing about being filled with the Spirit is that God does it. You see that? The church, Christians, are the recipients of an action of God. As God in his joy gives himself to us, fills us up, comes and is present with us, comes and indwells our heart, comes and is in the midst of us. So God does it. It's temporal energy. God does it. But third thing, it's a command. Which indicates a couple of things. Number one is, we leak. And the church leaks. The Holy Spirit comes and fills us up as individuals, and the Holy Spirit comes and moves within the church, but we leak, we gain back control, we take over, we get distracted, all kinds of things, and we lose the fullness of the Holy Spirit. We don't lose the seal of the Spirit. You know, when you become a Christian, we're sealed with the Holy Spirit. That's good, that's the promise of eternity. But this fullness of the Spirit, this glory of God showing through the church, this glory of God empowering us, we leak, we lose it. And so God says, listen, I command you, be filled with the Spirit, 
You need to do the things in your life which will allow you to be filled in the Spirit. Church, you need to be doing the things as a congregation, as a church, that allow you to be filled with the Spirit because it's the only antidote to that other kind of part of life which is so tempting for some of us. And it's the only thing that will nourish us enough to live the kind of part of life and be the kind of spiritual party animal that God wants us to be. So how do we do that? What's our, what's our part? Well, there's a bunch of things we could talk about. But what Paul says to the Ephesians is this. You want to be filled with the Spirit? You want to be able to resist that other part of your life which can be so, so attractive and tempting, at least in the short term. You want to be a party animal for God? Here's how you do it. You dive into corporate worship. Kind of weird, isn't it? He says, listen, you want to be filled with the Spirit. You want to talk about the kind of party that I want to have. You want to live the kind of life that I know you want to live. Then what you need to do is you need to dive into corporate worship. When I was talking with my, you know, with Scott and Hockley, we always go with the passage and Hockley as well. Why is it just corporate worship, not individual worship? I said, because that's what the Bible says. It's talking about corporate worship here. Sing song to one another. Oh, yeah. It's great to worship on your own. We should all worship on our own. But I'm telling you, there is something mystical. There is something powerful. There is something that we can't understand. There is something that we can't even properly express. That when we will allow ourselves to completely dive into corporate worship. The key in this passage for being full of the Holy Spirit is our corporate worship service. It's why it's so critical that we gather together. And I know that that's not very popular in our society anymore. I know you can go walk in the trees and paddle. Whatever. Good on you. Do it. I'm just telling you. That according to the Bible, in 4,000 years of spiritual history, God's people getting together corporately to worship him is critical to your life. So you do whatever you want with your spirituality and risk your kids' spirituality or whatever. But as for me, it's going to be a big deal, man, because the Bible says this is a big deal. Corporate worship to be filled with the Spirit. Tom Wright again. You've got the Apostle Paul and then you've got Tom Wright. Look at what he says. The singing, okay, this part here, spiritual songs. The singing that Paul has in mind is the ultimate antidote to living in the darkness of immorality and pervades the surrounding world. The antidote to all of that stuff, to all of that party, is true, proper, engaged, corporate worship. When we get together and we sing these songs and we gather around the Lord's table and we break open the word of God and when we sing to one another, our hearts get cracked open and the spirit of God can fill us. And the shell that the church can be can be so selfish and so self-centered. And then thank God in corporate worship, he cracks open the roof of the churches and pours out his spirit and fills the place with glory. That's what it's supposed to do. I was saying this to Hockley and Pence. 
And Scott said, oh, so I, you know, he knows how important worship is to me. It's been since I wrote my thesis on it even more. So. And he said, so Jones, you know, you're just going to read that and then you're just going to get carried away with the emotion of the moment. I will, maybe. <laughs> but then Hockley says, ah, I don't buy it, Jones. He's like, there's just too many people that we see him on Sunday morning that, I mean, he didn't do that because, he, well, actually he did do that because he's on Zoom. And then, but Monday morning, it doesn't show up. And Scott said, you know, when you think about it, Alan, you better figure out and say this carefully because right now one of the biggest scandals of the church is surrounding the church that's most known for worship, Hillsong. And the documentaries being made about it. And we've got all this stuff with the darkness. What are they being accused of? They're being accused of inappropriate sexuality, greed. And so Penn says, you better figure out how, if you're going to go up there and you're going to say that, listen, the key to being filled with the Holy Spirit as a church and as an individual is to totally dive into corporate worship. You better be able to explain how come the church that's most known for it is now, you know, it's a disaster in the eyes of the world. And many Christians, especially younger Christians. I love that. This is why we get together. I said, I'll tell you why. The answers to that are right here in this text. If you guys take the time to read it. We have great meetings going on this. <laughs> and, and there's two keys. Right here in this passage. That if the church would live out and catch on to, God help us. We wouldn't be carrying the shame that the church carries today. So what are the keys? Uh, you know, you get emotional when you get old. It drives me crazy. Can't read. All right. First key. First part of the answer. Verses 11 through 14. Have nothing to do with the fruitless deeds of darkness, but expose them. Sometimes we think that, you know, the church of Job is supposed to the deeds of darkness of the world, and I suppose there's a prophetic function within that we need to do that. But he's talking to Christians about Christians. Okay? Have nothing to do with those fruitless deeds of darkness, but rather expose them. It's shameful even to mention what the disobedient do in secret. But everything exposed by the light becomes visible, and everything that is illuminated becomes light. There's a chance of repentance and healing and reconciliation and things being made right when it's brought to light. This is why it's said, and then here comes this hymn of the church Wake up, sleeper, rise from the dead. You're acting like a dead person again. And Christ will shine on you. Expose the darkness. Make no mistake. We are our brother and sister's keeper. We need to be accountable to one another. As you read these horror stories of Christian leaders who stumble and fall, it seems to me that one of the great common denominators is that somehow they led to the place in their life where they were not accountable to other people for their lives and their leadership. It's insanity. 
Instead, the leadership starts covering stuff up. And you want to know what the world hates. We understand that people mess up. But when the church covers it up, shame. Right off. It's the craziest thing we do. The, you know what it says? You know what it says in First Timothy? It says in First Timothy chapter 5, hey, listen, if a church leader messes up and sins, then you have to discipline them publicly. You guys sin. You know, a friend might torture. An elder might come along beside you and say, sister, I hear you're struggling. I mess up. The elder's supposed to get me on the stage and stand behind me and I'm supposed to say to all of you, hey, I messed up and this is how I messed up and this is how the elders confronted me on it and this is my road to reconciliation and this is the way it goes. But instead, what has the church been doing? We expect some 19-year-old kid to walk into an elders meeting with a bunch of 50-year-old guys sitting there and expect her to say, that this guy who they hired, who they think is great, did this to me. And then they cover it up. God's word says, if you don't expose the darkness in my life, if the elders don't hold me accountable, if you don't hold me accountable, the light's not gonna shine. Ichabod, man, Ichabod. The glory of God has departed when we cover this stuff up. When you see celebrity status and power concentrated in one person, disaster is about to strike. It is a cruel and vicious thing to make a Christian leader a celebrity. The church should never do that. Because we are just setting these men and women and the church up for disaster. There is one celebrity and his name is Jesus. And we got to remember that and structure the church and live in the church and act in the church to ensure that that remains the case. So, yeah. Worship, corporate worship is going to bring the fullness of the Spirit, going to have the glory of God. How does that happen? Well, number one, we hold each other accountable. Number two, we think about and are deliberate about our worship songs and the Spirit. We think about the content of what it is that we're doing within the corporate worship service. We, we make sure that the things we're doing are the very things that crack open our hearts, that crack open the ceiling so that God's Spirit can be poured out upon us. And there's a few things right here in this passage which could help us uh, figure that out. Number one, in the New Testament, you know, the truth is, we don't know a whole lot about New Testament worship. We know lots about the Old Testament worship. We don't know much about New Testament worship. Really, we don't. But one of the things we do know is that New Testament worship was Christocentric, not egocentric. Jesus stood at the center of the worship songs of the New Testament. How do you know that, Alan? Well, we've got one right here in the passage, verse 14. All the scholars will tell you this, you know, this is a song of the early church, probably a baptismal song. 
that the church sung and said, you know what it is to come and be baptized into Christ? You wake up spiritually, you rise from the dead, and you let Christ's light shine on you and renew you. It's, it's a Christocentric song. Now, people are involved, of course, but, but Jesus stands at the center. That's why we have communion. That's why communion is the center of our worship experience, because it brings us to Jesus. I might mess it up and start talking about good communication skills or something, I don't know, and forget about Jesus. But you can come to the communion table and say, well, you know, Jones messed it up today, but at least we got to go to the table. At least we got to remember that Jesus is the Son of God who died for my sins. So the first thing about corporate worship, if we're going to have the Holy Spirit come and fill us up, if we're going to have this antidote to darkness and engage in the final party life that God wants us to have, is we have Christocentric, Jesus at the center of all we do in worship. Number two. You see this in the passage. Sing songs and hymns, spiritual songs to one another. Marcus Bart says this. You want to know, here's, here's the test. Here's a test for a good song. That the faith, faith, obedience, love, and joy of fellow Christians are stimulated and increased. Our songs should build up our faith, our obedience, our love, and our joy. He thinks this way. The singer's private pleasure alone cannot be its primary purpose. It's not that we don't enjoy it. Of course we enjoy it. God wants us to enjoy it. I rejoice when they said to me, come into the house of the Lord. Of course we should, we should enjoy it. But when we think about these songs, you see, they used to sing them probably antiphonally, you know. One song, Clyde would sing to the other. Or the men would sing to the other. What's that song we used to sing, you know, the women would sing, you know, men of faith rise up, and the men would sing, women of faith. What, what, we sing to the north and the south and the east and the west. Huh? Yeah, yeah. So that song, that's kind of how they used to do it. And they would teach each other as they taught about Christ and, and living in the Christ as they sung it. And so the first test, is it Christocentric? Second test, does it cause me to be more faithful, more obedient, to love Jesus more? Does it cause the expression of joy? And the next one I hate he says there needs to be a diversity or a variety in your worship. I mean, you know me. I just wanted the whole thing to be like a kiss concert. I like to stand there and feel the drums and the bass. And I started thinking, okay, now we're getting into it. Now we're starting to approach the throne. But no, there's some people that really like the pansy music. Gentle Jesus, meek and mild. I just beg the worship lead, just don't do that before I preach, okay? Just... But he goes on, he says, listen, you know, because we're different. And we need everybody to have their heart cracked open. You've got to have some kind of a variety in there. So you, you kind of listen. Now, you've got to be careful not to make too much of this whole thing about hymns, about uh, hymns and, and uh, psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. But I like what Clinton Arnold said. He said, you know, what's interesting here is he, he's sort of talking a little bit about cultural diversity. Because the word psalms is never used for worship singing in, in Gentile literature. Only in Hebraic literature. And so he said, you know, you've got these psalms, you've got these Jewish songs, the people that relate to God and that kind of thing. And then, and then you've, got, you've got these other things. You've got, uh, you've got hymns. And this is the word that the Gentiles use. As a matter of fact, in, in Ephesus, there was a guild, a, a hymn-writing guild to be used in the temple that was just out back there. And this is sort of the kind of language that Gentiles were used to, you know? It's kind of like, dude, the Martin Luther getting the, the beer hall songs in, in the Mighty Forces of God and stuff. And then he says, and then, and then so you've got that, and then you've got this other thing, spiritual songs. 
<laughs> probably means kind of spontaneous things coming to the singers, guided by the Spirit. Now, that kind of freaks some of us out because it's like, where are the words, man? Where are the words? I don't know what to say. But, you know, instead of saying, look, you've got to kind of let that wash over you a little bit. You've got to wash over. Don't worry, Jones is going to be there. He's going to make sure that it's Christocentric. And, <laughs> and so that's, that's probably what it's talking about there. What he's saying is that, listen, when you sing these songs to one another, let's, make, let's just understand that we all, we all express ourselves and we all receive from the Spirit in different ways, different songs. And so make sure you've got that in there. Diversity. So, you know, you've got Christocentric, you've got, it builds the, the faith of the other people, you've got an expression of diversity, and then finally he says, and listen, let there be joyous thanksgiving. Because a party is a time for joy. And that's the tone, he's saying, that's the tone of our corporate gathering. It's joyful thanksgiving. Because that's the kind of mood you want to set when you're gonna have a good party. So in front of you today, there's a choice of two different kind of parties that you can, you, you can choose which kind of party animal you wanna be. But understand that when you show up here on a Sunday morning, whether you're in the homes doing it, I hope if you're joining the homes that you sing songs and not just like. God invites you right now to kind of be a Holy Spirit party animal. We call it corporate worship. It's a celebration that cracks open our hearts and cracks open the roof of the church so the Holy Spirit can flood our lives and can flood this church, giving us the antidote, the cure to the darkness that tempts us and to provide us with the nourishment for living the kind of light-giving, life-granting party that God's grace offers. So we are invited to party. So let the party leaders lead us on.